Good morning. Y'all, it's so good to be back in this place and to see your wonderful faces. Um, For those of you who don't know me again, my name is Marcus Nobles, and I am the campus ministry associate, weird title, um, uh, for RUF at Alabama A&M. And I love to give this analogy when I explain to folks what RUF is. RUF is Reformed University Fellowship. It's the PCA Church's college campus ministry. And I like to think of RUF as the church's food truck. You guys may have heard me give this uh, analogy before. Anybody ever been to a really good food truck? Yeah? I love this one because I like to eat. Clearly, I haven't missed any meals. Um, and with a really good food truck, usually you smell it long before you see it, right? And the food that food trucks have is often just irresistible. Like, it's just delicious. And food trucks barely ever have a really large menu. It's usually just a few things that they do, and they do it very well. And they drive it to where people are hungry, and they drop off this food that you smell long before you see it. Likewise, RUF is the food truck of the church. My job as an RUF campus minister is to package the gospel in an irresistible and delicious way, drive it to where students are hungry, and drop it off to people who need it the most, and create it in such a way that they often smell it long before they see it, right? And they kind of waft into this beautiful aroma that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we get to serve them this small menu of the gospel. And when they take a bite and they realize how delicious it is, we can point them to the restaurant. We can tell them go to church, right? If you think this little bit that you got from this campus ministry was great, go to church where they have the full menu, right? So again, I like to think of RUF as the food truck of the church. I get to package the gospel in a beautiful and irresistible way, drop it off to hungry students, and then turn around and point them back to the restaurant, which is the church. And we can't do the work of RUF without churches like this, right? Without support from people like you, RUF can't operate. And I'm so thankful to have such a wonderful, beautiful church that loves the gospel and loves God's people as well as this church does. I couldn't do what I do without you. So thank you. Quick update on RUF at Alabama A&M. When I was before you guys this time last year, we were just planting, replanting the work of RUF on the campus of Alabama A&M. And I was really plowing the concrete. Um, I was working really hard um, because Alabama A&M is an HBCU in, in uh, Huntsville. It doesn't really have a ton of PCA ties, so there's not a bunch of Covenant kids that are coming to this campus looking for RUF, right? There's not a lot of people there who even know what the PCA is. So it's not like I came in with a group of students who were all excited about RUF. In fact, campus ministry in the way that RUF does it doesn't really exist on most HBCU campuses. There isn't usually a full-time campus minister who is there for that campus. Usually it's some uh, uh, group of people who do an incredible job of doing uh, evangelicalistic, like tent revival style mission, and they show up on campus, they do a great job, and then they're gone. So to have a full-time campus minister is something that the campus was not used to. Right, So I land on this campus, and I'm planting this ministry, and I'm trying to gather students. And it was a really, really slow year. Really disappointing when the things that you try to build kind of fall apart, right? But the beautiful thing is that even though Marcus failed a lot, God never failed, right? 
And God sometimes uses us in such a way that um, he works things in us first so that he can then work through us to his people. And so I had a very beautiful season, a very hard season of God working on me first, right? And now I get to be the vessel that he uses to work through to his people. Amen. So now, um, last year, this time, again, we were just planning, there were no students, right? Just last, just last night um, and the night before, we, we, we had a couple of events, and there were almost 85 students in the room. <sighs> so in less than a year, God is able to take this broken, empty vessel, wash it up, make it new, and then fill it with something that is so beautiful and so irresistible that is clearly not me on my own, that it is attracting students in mass. Amen. So things are going very well at the university. Um, things are going very well with, with this ministry. However, we do still have some ways that you can come alongside to help to help with this growth and the continuation of what's happening on campus. Number one, first and foremost, is always financially. Our students aren't used to the idea of conferences and missions and um, um, uh, all, of the, all of the other things that RUF offers outside of just on the campus. And most of our students work, right? So we have a ton of engineering students, um, mechanical and electrical. They have lots of internships. They're very, very busy, right? They're very smart students. A lot of them are first-time college students, first-generation college students who are working to put themselves through college. So when you have a student who is working for f uh, almost a full-time job and being an electrical engineering student with an internship with NASA, right? They don't have a lot of time and they don't have a lot of money. So when I offer them conferences like winter conference or summer conference, it's almost impossible for them to go simply because of the cost of registration, which likely is only like $130 to $200 for a week-long conference that plugs them into community with other college students and lets them experience the full birth of what RUF really is. Because RUF is on 185 campuses all across the US and internationally. So for these conferences, it's so much more than just one campus showing up. For, for a winter conference, I think there's 15 campuses total that will all be in the same place at the same time, doing Bible study together and worshiping and enjoying our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So one quick way that you can help come alongside this ministry right now is to help provide funds for these students to go on these mission trips and these conferences. Another way that the entire congregation can, can come alongside this ministry, the university is putting together a campus pantry and they're looking to fill that pantry with non-perishable items and um, hygiene supplies for this wide mass of students who, again, are mostly first-time college students and are working to put themselves through school. So there are items that these kids need that they don't have. And you can, can, can provide those items for them. Something as simple as um, uh, deodorant, shaving supplies, socks, and canned food 
which is something that we don't likely think twice about, means the world to a college student. And how easy is it for us to provide that for them? So there are, uh, are, uh, is a quick update and a, and, and a couple of simple ways that um, you can help come alongside the ministry of um, RUF on the campus of Alabama A&M. If any of that sounds interesting to you, please holler at me later. I have some flyers and, and some cards in the back um, uh, um, where you can sign up to donate. And I would love to talk with you more about how you can come alongside this ministry. Amen? Amen. Now let's get to the word, which is my favorite part. There's something about the gospel that just makes you feel warm and fuzzy, right? And I'll tell you this, I never get tired of hearing it. I never get tired of hearing the gospel. Every time I hear it, I feel like this, the exact same way that I did when I was a kid when I heard it for the first time. And it's a pleasure to be able to open up the gospel to these college students on a daily basis, right? So today we're going to look into 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 17 through 26, but really we're going we're to talk about the entire first chapter. It was about a year ago this time that I was here last, and we looked at the first chunk of 1 Peter. And in those first 12 verses, Peter is writing this letter to who he titles elect exiles, right? These are God's people. This is in a time of dispersion, which sounds a lot like college students, right? They're not at home, and they don't know how, when, where to worship like they used to, right? And Peter writes this beautiful letter that in these first 12 verses kind of spells out all these things that are unequivocally true if you call yourself Christian, right? And we're going to breeze through these first 16 verses because this isn't the sermon. The sermon starts at verse 17. Um, and in those first 12 verses, Peter lists out all these things that, that are true. And he's reminding his uh, um, our readers of this letter to remember who God is and who we belong to, that we have a living hope in a risen Savior named Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? And that our inheritance isn't even here on earth. It's in heaven. And even if we suffer for a little while here on earth, our faith in Christ gives us joy that is inexpressible to the rest of the world. Right? And, and somehow Peter crams all of that into those first 12 verses. It's amazing. And then in verse 13, he, he tells us to um, change how we think, to prepare our minds, to gird up the loins of our minds, to be sober-minded in our thinking, um, and to set our hope on Christ and Christ alone. That could be a sermon all to itself. And then in, the, in 15 and 16, he tells us to do, to be, to be obedient, not to be conformed to this world, to be holy, to look like Christ, and to let God into everything, right? That's a quick recap of the last sermon, those first 16 verses. Now, let's dig into verses 17 through 25. Again, we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. And it says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by the obedience to truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and the glory like the flower of grass. The grass wither and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you humbly once again to say thank you. Thank you for being our God. And thank you for choosing us to be your people. Father, let the words of this scripture be written deeply on the tablets of our hearts. And as we, your people, dig into your word, help us to find you and less of ourselves. Father, it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, the first half of chapter one ends us with setting our hope on Christ and Christ alone and letting God into every department of our lives and how that brings us comfort in a dark and troubling world. Today, we're going to focus on the why behind those truths. As it is with us even now today as Christians living in the already work of Christ and waiting on the age of when he returns. In this sermon, I'd like to point out three primary things. What we have, how do we get it, and what do we do with it? What we have, how do we get it, and what do we do with it? I like to call this sermon Christian Basics because this is, this, is, this is one of those sermons that I always start the semester off with students because it digs into some very easy principles of what it means to really call yourself Christian. What we have, how do we get it, and what do we do with it? So let's start. What do we have? If we call ourselves Christians, what we have, brothers and sisters, is a relationship. Amen? One of the biggest points that I think that is shown to us in this scripture in particular is that God is relational. Peter's reminder here of a father and child theme um, is appropriate for it's the nature of children to want to imitate their parents. Christians should delight in imitating God, both because he is our father and because his moral excellence is inherently beautiful and desirable. Let me put it to you this way. To be like God is the best way to be. Right? First Peter, um, verse 117. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter here is telling us that we know that we have a father that we can call on for help. We have a relationship with a God who loves us like a father and we can call on him for help. Amen? Amen. And because we know whose we are, not just who we are, but whose we are, we should act like it, right? We should carry ourselves in such a way that shows not just who we are, but whose we are. 
That's the fear that he's talking about here. Living your life knowing that you have membership in God's family. Listen, God chose you. Amen? God chose you out of the world and he knows you by name. You are his and his alone. Ah. I don't know about you, but that makes me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Right? I have a God who knows me. And I have a relationship with him. And it's not because I deserve it, but it's because he chose us. Ah. So we should carry ourselves in such a way that shows not only who we are, but whose we are. And we should live our life knowing that we have membership in God's family. And that comes with some privileges, right? And it comes with some discipline. God's discipline. Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews 12 and 5 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Listen, saints, we have a relationship with a father who not only loves us, but he loves us so much that he disciplines us. Amen? So that's the key mark of how we can know that we have a relationship, right? If he didn't have a relationship with us, if he didn't love us like that, he wouldn't care to discipline us, right? All of us who have children know that we love our children so much that we'll discipline them to keep them from going in the wrong direction, right? Any football fans here? Yeah? All right. I'm a six foot one, 300 pound dude, so clearly I played football, right? There's no football coach that doesn't discipline harder the best players on the team. If you know anything about sports, the coach is always hardest on the best player, right? Why? Because I expect more from you. I know exactly who you are. I know what you're capable of. And when that best player doesn't live up to what they're capable of, they face their coach's discipline. Why? Because the coach loves them that much. Now, what about Jimmy, that kid that's on the team that just barely made it, right? If he doesn't show up and show out, the coach doesn't say a word. There's no discipline there because I'm not expecting much out of him. But God expects something out of us because it's whose we are. Amen? And that's where his discipline comes in. We know that we have a relationship when we get the privileges and the discipline. One commentary says it this way. Although many Christians today dismiss the fear of God as an Old Testament concept that has no place in the New Covenant, they do so to neglect many New Testament passages into the impoverishment of their spiritual lives. Fear of God's discipline is a good and proper attitude, the sign of a New Testament church growing in maturity and experiencing God's blessings. Moreover, fear of God is connected with our growth and holiness. 
right? The closer that we get to him and the more that we become like him and the more holy that we become, the more that we have this expressed fear, right? This fear leads to a growth in holiness, which leads to us acting out whose we are. These are all marks of a relationship. Amen? And it's not this type of fear that's like, do or don't do things so that I don't get in trouble. Do or don't do things so that I don't get punishment. It's do or don't do because of whose I am. This semester, we're working through the Ten Commandments in our Bible studies. And, and I've been purposely trying to teach our students that the Ten Commandments aren't these laws and rules that you have to follow. These are all things that you would do willingly because of whose you are. Right? The commandments tell us not to kill. It's don't just not kill just because. It's because it's, it's not loving to do those things. Right? Don't lie. Why? Because that's not loving. And we have a relationship with the Father who loves us. And if we're going to live our lives in such a way that shows whose we are, then those are the types of things that should show up. Right? So this fear that I'm talking about isn't do or don't do because of punishment. It's do or don't do because of a relationship. Because of whose we are. <laughs> That's mine making all the noise, by the way. See? We have a relationship. She knows. She hears my voice. That's perfect. So point number one, we have a relationship. Point number two, what do we have? A relationship. How do we get it? Point number two, how do, how do we get it? Church, we were ransomed and we are redeemed. First Peter eight of uh, chapter one, verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Church, verse 18 tells us that we were bought with a price. Amen? This is the very foundation of our faith in what we believe. That God loved us so much that he was willing to pay the cost for us. Amen? In Old Testament Hebrew, this word redeemer, Gael, means kinsman redeemer. Think like in the story of Ruth, right? This widow that's in debt in, 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 in a situation almost like a slave where someone can step in and restore what is lost and redeem us from our bondage. Someone who could pay the price to set us free. That's what that redeemer word means. God was willing to pay the cost for you. God was willing to pay the cost for you. Why? Because he's in relationship with you. And he loves you so much that the cost that although was very high was not too much for him to pay. That's how much he loves you. Church, I don't know about you, but that makes me feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Right? Peter is telling us here that we must conduct our lives with fear of God's discipline, verse 17, because you know that you are redeemed. 
out of a sinful manner of life at great cost with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, Peter is implying that God will not be pleased if you casually disregard the ethical purpose of of his redemption. He paid for you. And you're worth it. Amen? Verse 19 echoes what we know from Scripture, that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin in the world. I think this is the master theme of the Bible. From its beginning to the end, we see this theme of a lamb, right? In the Old Testament, in Genesis 4, Cain and Abel, Abel's lamb is the perfect offering, right? In Genesis 22, there's the sacrifice of Isaac. There's a ram that's in the bush that saves the life of one person, Isaac. And then in Exodus 12, the Passover, the lamb's blood is put on the doorpost, right? That saves the life of one family. And then in in Leviticus 16, in, in, in the Day of Atonement, the priest would make a sacrifice of a lamb that would save an entire nation. And then in Isaiah 53, he talks about the one that is coming like a lamb led to slaughter. He, the one who would save those who would at some point come to know him, the elect, the same elect exiles that Peter's talking to here in this text. And then in the New Testament, in John 1, 29, the Jesus becomes the lamb of God, the coming lamb that comes to save the entire world. In Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53 and asks Philip if the writer is talking about himself or if he's talking about someone else, this lamb that will save anyone who comes to know Jesus. Here in 1 Peter, Peter's lamb without a spot or blemish, this lamb of redemption. Peter tells us that the only thing that can save is the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And then in Revelation 4 and 5, there's this enthroned lamb, this lamb that's in charge of all, that's seated on the throne and standing over everything. And then at the end in Revelation 21 and 22, there's an eternal lamb that is in control forever. We know that Jesus is this lamb, amen, that has come to save us, the ones he chose, the ones he loves, the ones he's in relationship with. The one he paid a cost to redeem. We know that Jesus' death and resurrection is so precious in God's sight that it should never be taken lightly by us, nor should we underestimate its value. Christ's blood alone could pay the price of our redemption. He gives it freely but it came with a cost. And church, you are worth it. So we put our faith where? In Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Look at verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Church, our faith and our hope is not in the world, but it is in a living and risen Savior. Amen? Amen. That underscores this relationship that God wants with us, a real, deep, 
costly but worthwhile relationship that came at a high price but was worth every cent. Amen? So what do we have? We have a relationship. How do we get it? We were bought with a price, with Jesus' blood. I'm almost done. Point number three, what do we do with it? What do we do with that? Peter puts it really simply, verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of, of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Folks, what do we do with it? We love. We love. Real love. Earnest love. Brotherly love. We love like God loved us first. We love like Jesus did. We love each other so much like Jesus loved when he agreed to die for our sins, when he agreed to pay a price that was so high, when Jesus willingly was beaten and broken and crucified for us whom he loved. Church, what, what do we do with that? We love each other. John 15 puts it this way. When Jesus tells us, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Mm. In fact, church, that's what all the commandments really are. That's what all the commandments really say. That's what all the commandments truly point to, is to love. Real love, earnest love, like Jesus loved, like God loves us. Why? Because he's in relationship with us. We have a relationship with a father who loves us. And we have that relationship because he paid for it with a price. God loved us so much that he gave his son for us so that we might not die but have everlasting life. And so what should we do with that? We should love each other in the same way that God loves us. Amen? From a pure heart, brotherly love, earnest love, sincere love, the love that Jesus shows to each and every one of us each and every day. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you humbly once again to say thank you for being our God and thank you for choosing us to be your people. Father, remind us of what we have, this relationship with a living and risen Savior who loves us. He loves us so much that he didn't step down from the cross, but he stayed there and died for our sins. Father, remind us to love one another in the same way that you love us. 
And Father, as we continue our lives and our days and, and, and all of our toil here on this fallen and broken world, remind us that we have a beacon of hope and joy and light in a risen and living Savior who wants relationship with us, who bought us with the price, and loves us so dearly. Father, it's this in all things we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen.